praise you and I thank you for the opportunity to serve you and for what this season means that it's not about a child it's about a life it's about a death and a resurrection for us and we praise you for that we love you Jesus we pray that this church will be glory to you that people will see you through us and will be reflectors of you we love you in your precious name I pray amen So there's going to be a slide come up. I'm going to give you a commercial. Okay, so that's my job is to give you a commercial. My name is Kevin Patterson. I am the chairman of the stewardship committee here at the church. And we're finishing out uh, a year. And generally, I don't do this. I don't come up with a commercial. Uh, but we have some things that have happened that are really unprecedented in our church. And we would like to visit with you about that uh, coming up. I'll just give you a quick... Uh, our insurance, liability insurance, dropped us. And to find a new one, it's about a $200,000 increase. And so we're going to have to have some difficult conversations as a church, and we don't want that to hurt our ministry moving forward, is what we, what we don't want to do. So what we would like to do, and somehow they kept pointing at me whenever we had meetings about this, but what we would like to do is on uh, the 17th, which is in two weeks, during Sunday school, I'd like to just talk you through it. And probably we're going to have some time in prayer. So we're going to bring the adults and I think the youth in here during Sunday school on the 17th. And, and just I'm going to be as transparent and as honest as I can uh, with you guys. And we're going to talk through it and say, this is what do we want to do as a church? At that point, there won't be questions that morning. But when you, if you'll come back that evening, we're going to answer questions. So we'll, have, we'll give you time to mill over it all day long. You just come rip us uh, in the evening, okay? And I've been there. But uh, if, if, if you, that's really what we want to do. And then on the 24th, we're going to vote on it is, is the plan. We feel like that there needs to be a little bit more discussion and a little bit more presentation on this. And so we're doing something that I don't, in the, Several years I've been here, decades that I've been here, we've never done something like this. So we, we think it's that important that we want to do that. The 17th in the morning is a presentation. In the evening, we'll answer questions. So that's all I want to do. Pray about it until we get to that point. That's the most important thing we, could, we would ask you to do. Thank you so much. Dr. Patterson, you spent way too much time in school board meetings. In, in church, there's no ripping. There, there's... <laughs> Am I right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, we uh, do uh, covet your prayers on this issue. Uh, it's, it's something that we could not foresee. The insurance industry did it, and there you have it. So be praying, and we'll, we'll, God will guide us in a wise decision. Um, 
please take advantage of, of uh, filling out one of those prayer cards and uh, connection cards, and you can put that in the offering plate here in a minute, or you can uh, take those to the Connection Center, and we'll, we'll process them there, okay? So please, please do that. Well, as we continue with, uh, with Advent, uh, another great song of anticipation of the Savior is, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Let's sing that together. Matthew's genealogy is saturated with Old Testament history. It was critical for his original hearers to understand the Jewish lineage leading to Christ. Every detail in the Old Testament, even from the very beginning, was pointing to a king who would come. History revolves around a king who would come, a king who has now come. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, is the king and center of it all. Today, we light the first purple candle 
to remind us of the coming of our great high priest and king, Jesus Christ. It is the candle of prophecy, and it reminds us of God's promised Savior. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Micah 5.2-4, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 9, 6-7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Matthew 1:17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let us pray. O oh, great God, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time of year. We can pause and we can remember the great gift of love that you've given us. We thank you, God, for sending your son Jesus, our Savior, the King of Kings, the Messiah. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Stand and sing this great Christmas carol.
we come to this uh, time in our service where we continue with our worship. And it's a worship, this type of worship is called an offering. It's called a tithe. And so, Lord, we pray uh, that in this act of, of worship, we would please you as well, uh, not just with singing, but with giving. And so, Lord, we dedicate this time to you. We ask that every gift given would just go to glorify your name and reach people for, uh, for Christ Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. shown to those who sit in death's shadow. Sun on high, pierced the night, born was the cornerstone. Unto us the Son is given, unto us a child is born. He who is mighty has done a great thing, taken on flesh, Sting, shatter the darkness and lifted our shame. Holy is his name. Oh, the freedom our Savior won, the yoke of sin has been broken. Once a slave. To us a child is born, he who's mighty has done a great thing, taken on flesh, conquered destiny, shattered the darkness and lifted our shame. Holy Well, praise the Lord. Uh, Brother David told me I would like that one, this one, 
And I did. I was trying to contain myself and not scare the ladies to death. <clears throat> Don't you love to hear people sing who believe what they're singing? Can you just feel that? Especially Lacey leading those verses. You believe in what you're singing, and there's confidence in the Lord. Praise God for uh, lifting song. Some of you probably recognize uh, Mary's Magnificent there with the words that were said and sung, and I hope you're familiar with that text of Scripture. Today I want to talk to you about the fact that Jesus rules the world, and a subtitle would be, Things Are Not What They Seem. So Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. The Bible says, For it was not angels that God subjected to the world to come. Of which we are speaking. Now, of course, that echoes back to what's been going on from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 2, verse 4. Of that which we have been speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man, that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him. But we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. What a text of scripture. Natalie and I, a few years ago, <clears throat> left Atlanta, Georgia, about 6 p.m. on a Sunday afternoon en route to Newport News, Virginia. I had been asked to preach in Virginia, and Everything was good at first, right on that flight, you remember it? But as we approached Newport News, everything was not good. It was a thunderstorm. And man, that plane began to shimmy and shake like none other. Usually it doesn't bother me, but this one was a little disconcerting, to say the least. And there was clouds, thunder and lightning, thick fog. And so Natalie asked me, as she was clawing me to death in my arm... Is this pilot going to be able to navigate through the clouds and through the fog? And I said to her, if he keeps on course by looking at his instruments in front of him, he's going to be fine. If he doesn't, it's going to be our demise. Because that's really all he has. When it's dark and you can't see, all you can do is trust the controls, trust what he knows to do. And so if he doesn't, he's going to drift off course. And that won't be good at all for us. And that probably wasn't the best thing that I wanted to hear at that particular time. But in the spiritual realm, we have to consider Christ as the reference point for the access of all the greater realities of life. You got to consider that reference point. Just as a pilot considers the reference point of the controls in front of him, there's only one person that controls the world. And that reference point is Christ the Lord. And that's why the, the author has been laboring 
for us to see Jesus. Just think of verse 9. But we see him. He's wanting you to have that reference point. And he's done so by doubling down on who Christ is. He is the eternal God. He's the Son of God for all eternity. He's exalted to the highest place. And so we consider that he's the Lord of the universe. And it's important for us to remember that he's labored in chapter 1 to teach us exactly that. So in reference to the church of Rome, don't you think it would have been very important for them to know that God would one day render all the persecution powerless. He's going to wipe all their tears away. He's going to reunite them with their loved ones. And he will presently supply our every need. Now, we will not always live in this in-between time. Uh, when you're on a, f- a flight and you know full well that a storm's coming or it's there and your life could end. We won't always be in that situation. Aren't you thankful for that? And so there's this in-between time. And, and this is what this text is addressing in many ways. It's addressing God's intention for man. It's addressing what happened to man. It's addressing the man, the Son of God who came as a man in order to chart your destiny. In other words, if you're not in Christ, then your destiny is not with God at all. It's not with heaven at all. It's actually hell. That's the seriousness of considering Jesus. So the pains of this present life are going to all fade one day into, into the horizon of hope. But remember this. We have not yet reached God's ultimate intention for man. We're not there yet. And that's why the text says it like it does. We do not see all things under subjection under his feet at this point. Okay? So, sometimes what looks to be the darkest hour in our world's perspective is actually the brightest. The passage is designed to help us live as the people of God. To help us think about God's purposes in this world. Even with humanity. As we serve the purpose of God in a fallen world. So we, what we believe at times seems to be contrary to what we actually see in the world. We don't see all things under subjection to man. Or even to the son of man on the surface at this point. Do we? We don't see that. Now, with this reality, please don't slip off into this belief that the Christian life is simply wishful thinking. Or it's just a crutch that we need to get us through life. The Christian life is not us creating our own reality. Neither is the Christian life absent of reality. The Christian life, according to the Bible, is a walk of faith, not of sight. And Hebrews is going to expound upon that, right? Hebrews 11 We're going to see that. So we live confidently in what God's truth is or what God says as truth. And God's truth is truth today, tomorrow, and throughout all eternity. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So this is the reality. You know, one of the great Christmas texts in the Bible is this one. Christ came into the world to bear witness to the truth. Have you read that in the Gospels? He came to bear witness of the truth. So the truth is lived out in spite or despite what we actually see with our eyes. In many ways, 
The book of Hebrews is designed to reorient your life back to a life of walking by faith and not by sight. So, the writer of Hebrews will move away from a parenthesis, which is chapter 2, 1 through 4, and he's going to go right back to exhortation. Okay? Uh, We're still carrying the same theme of Christ's superiority to angels. And again, the key to that is not that the church... This, this congregation was worshiping angels. I don't think that's what was going on at all. I think the issue is they, need to understood, they needed to understand that the mediatorial work of Christ was far superior and better than any mediatory work of angels at Mount Sinai mediating the law of God. Primarily because you can't be saved by the law. You can only be saved by Christ. So he has appealed In chapter 1, 1 through 14, to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You can't be almost God. He is fully God. But he's not done in expounding this. Because now, he's going to step off into Christmas. Merry Christmas, folks, by the way. He's going to spend time talking about not only his divinity, but he's going to talk about his divine nature. Not only his divine nature... But he's going to talk about his humanity. What does he use to support his divine nature? He uses the Old Testament. And guess what he's going to use to support his humanity? Say it. The Old Testament. All right. So he extols Christ as the enthroned God, as king, as the exalted one, as one worshipped by angels. Christ is eternally God and he is unchanging. And even at this moment, he is victoriously ruling and reigning at the Father's right hand. He's not waiting to reign and rule. He reigns and rules right now. That's who he is. So in chapter 2, 1 through 4, he makes this appeal that considering everything the Bible says about Jesus, we've got to pay attention, right? We labored last week. Therefore, chapter 2, verse 1, you are to pay much closer attention to what you have heard, lest you drift away. And here's what we all say about drifting. No matter how you slice it, it's dangerous. It's dangerous to drift away from the reality of Christ. So in chapter 2, 5 through 18, the writer is going to continue his teaching on Christ's superiority over angels. Now, note verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, which we are speaking. So, verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. I read those to help you see that he's not done in encouraging this church, this small congregation, to consider how much superior Christ is to angels. He begins it in verse 5, and he's still talking about it in verse 16. So chapters 1, 1 through 14 has been the writer dealing with the exaltation of Christ, his divine nature, he's the son of God. But 2, 5 through 18 is going to focus on his humanity. Do you know when the first time the book of Hebrews uses the name Jesus is? Right here. The very first time. This is the first time that he also underscores his death. Those things are important to think about. So he's now going to focus on Christ's incarnation. Theologians call this point of Christ's entrance into the world as his humiliation. You ever heard of that? Raise your hand. It is the humiliation of Christ. It's really taken from Philippians chapter 2. That he did not consider his equality with the Father something to be grasped. But he made himself. That's, that's uh, 
taking, he, he put aside, well, actually he added something. He added humanity. That was his humiliation. But his humiliation did not begin on the cross. It began when God came to earth and became a man. So it's vital for us to understand his humanity as well as his deity. 1 John will tell you that if you deny that Christ came in the flesh, you are the spirit of the Antichrist. So I would say that his humanity is important. Wouldn't you? It's vitally important. So the writer is going to grapple with that fact. Listen to this. That the divine, majestic God is the very same one who made himself a little lower than the angels for a while. The writer could be dealing with an objection. Perhaps someone could say in the church, well, I get that you're telling me that all things are going to be under subjection to him and that he's God, but, but I don't see that in the world today. I don't, I don't see that taking place. Or the objection could be this. You say he has all dominion, yet he came in weakness. Right? <clears throat> he came in weakness. Additionally, not only did he come in weakness, but he died a criminal's death on the cross. How can this Jesus, who had taken upon himself human flesh and blood as man, coming in weakness, be the one who is exalted above angels? Angels are awesome, right? Jesus was crucified. I mean, obviously it looks like they fared better than him. And they could have this objection. How can this little baby of Bethlehem, who lived this weak human life, be exalted above angels? How can this Jesus, who subjected himself to a cruel, barbarous, torturous, ignominious death, on the cross, be exalted above the angels? That's a good question, isn't it? How do we hold together Christ's eternal supremacy, his triumphant exaltation, together with his humiliation and his death, and the fact that his enemies are not yet clearly seen under his feet? Well, that's what the sermon is about. This is beginning to be a long introduction, isn't it? Trust me. The, the divisions of the sermon will not be quite as long as the intro today. But what's he going to grab? For him grappling with this issue of how he can be eternally God and become man and, and, and be exalted all at the same time, he's going to bring our attention to Psalm 8. Now, I'm, I'm assuming that you're going to remember everything I said about Psalm 8 back in the summer. When we preached, we had the Psalms of summer, and we preached specifically in Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 demonstrates the Son of God's incarnation and the fact that He has come to fulfill mankind's destiny. So His incarnation and death were actually the pathways to His glory, His honor, and His dominion. The key verses in chapter 2 are found in verses 8 and 9. Putting everything into subjection to his, under His feet... Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present time, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. So that's the key verses. Because of the suffering that was constituted in his death, he's crowned with glory, honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Who rules the world to come? I mean, here he says, here's what we do know. For it was not 
to angels that God subjected the world. That's the thing you know for sure is that the world will not be, the world to come will not be subjected to the authority of angels. Is that pretty clear? It hasn't been given. The authority has not been given to them. But here's the question in the follow-up. Who is it given to? Who is it given to? So, that's a big question. The second big question is, who's in view in Psalm 8? Who is it talking about when he says, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you should care for him? Who is it talking about? Well, I'll tell you this. If you just pick up the word of God and open up the Psalms, and you start at Psalm 8 and begin to read, you're not going to first think about the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not who you're going to think about. What you're going to think about in that psalm is the majesty and glory of God. And that's what that psalm is. But then he's going to move after we acknowledge his majesty and his glory. He's going to talk about how that the weakness of man can shame that which is strong. In the eyes of the world. Is anybody tracking with me yet? Uh, Micah 5.2. That Alyssa read. You, Bethlehem, you were small. Right? God's, God's got something going on in this prophecy. of The fact that he's going to confound the wise through the simple. He's going to do the extraordinary through what seems to be the mundane and the simple. And so, in Psalm 8... Not only do we acknowledge God's majesty, but we see how he's going to take the weakness of man to shame others. And then we're going to see how he created man with honor to rule the world, actually, is what the Bible says. So Psalm 8 is a celebration of the majesty of God and also a celebration of the creation of man. It celebrates man's dominion over the world as God intended in the beginning. So you've got to go back to Eden. And you got to think about Adam and Eve, and you got to think about what God said to them. He gave to man dominion over all things. All things were subject to Adam and Eve in the garden before sin. So we have this dilemma. God did not subject the world to come to angels, but he doesn't tell us who he subjected it to. Then he moves to Psalm 8. Who, who, is, who is Psalm 8 talking about? Mankind or Jesus or both? And I would say both. He's talking about mankind, but he's also looking forward to the Son of God who will come as a man to ultimately give man his intention. Uh, the intention of God's creation of how it was to begin with. So, look at chapter 2 verse 5 one more time. For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. And now let your eyes move back to Hebrews 1.13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Now skip the parenthesis 2, 1 through 4 and read verse 5. For the sake of those who are to inherit salvation, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world. Grammatically... Do you see the lesson? You, you go back to 1, 13, and 14 so that you understand what verse 5 is saying. And that inherent salvation is massive in the mind of the author. Because I'm telling you folks, you're saved and on your way to heaven if you're in Christ. But what happens with the world to come? 
I think that's pretty important. I think it's pretty important to belong to Jesus, not only because he saved your soul, but he's taken us somewhere. Hallelujah. He, he's in control of the world to come. He's the one who rules. And if you belong to Jesus, you shall reign with him. And that's what the inherent salvation is. These people had not quite inherited all there is to be with salvation. It's coming in the future. And Jesus controls that as well. That's why he's superior to the angels. Those who will inherit salvation, for God did not place the rule to come to angels. He did not give that rule to angels. He hasn't done that. So, now, angels at the present time do have an administrative role, don't they? They're sent out as ministering spirits for those who will inherit salvation. If you read Daniel 9, uh, excuse me, Daniel's chapter 10 through 12, you'll actually find that there's a special understanding of the ministry of angels actually Michael is delayed Archangel Michael because he's fighting the prince of Persia and that makes us think wow what's going on there many see this as angelic warfare that's connected to the nations do y'all think that's happening in our world today you got to get your head out of the sand if you don't see it that it's happening in all the nations and there's no telling how much angelic warfare is going on even as you sit in this pew. It happened in Daniel 10 through 12 and it's happening today. Paul will tell us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers, both of which are authorities and those are authority words. So in the present time that we live, both good angels and fallen angels do exert some type of administrative or authoritarian role. The writer says, in the age to come, that will not be the role of an angel. In the world to come, the writer says, in the age to come, angels have no such role. In God's economy today, they fulfill a role that they will not fulfill in the future. What is the world to come? Don't jump so fast to heaven, because I know you're thinking that. And the primary the primary meaning is the world to come. In other words, it's, stuff, it's, it's, it's things that we have not yet gotten, anticipated. In other words, you're a citizen of heaven right now. You just haven't gotten there yet, right? You don't have all of it yet. So the writer will talk about the age to come. Hebrews 9.11, Hebrews 10.1, Hebrews 4.1, Hebrews 11.40. And there's no doubt that he's talking about an age to come, a world to come. We might say it like this. We have the already and the not yet. Why is that important? Because there is this tension between the age to come or the good things to come together with the fact that the future of Christ's kingdom has already permeated the present age that we live in. Okay, keep that in mind. Much of this is realized in the salvation you already have in Christ. So much of the world to come is already in you and you are experiencing it because you're a saved individual and you belong to Jesus. I'll ask you a question. Has salvation come to you already? And you will say, absolutely. I'm born again. I, I know Christ. I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm saved. I have possession of it. The moment you put your faith and trust in Christ alone, you entered into, in many ways, the world to come. So, second question have you not yet been saved? And I only have to hang out with you about 15 minutes to figure that out. Because you're just like me. You're a sinner saved by grace. 
you have not yet entered the realization of full salvation. The Bible says you shall see him as he is and you shall be like him. We're not there yet. We know this. So when Christ came into the world, he brought with him the world to come. He brought into our world a little bit of the age to come. Even the word perfected in Hebrews doesn't mean that you are perfected in the sense of the fact that you don't sin. What it means is you've been purged, washed, cleansed from your sins once and for all. And that is what makes you right with God. Not works of the law, which can never justify you, but only what Christ has accomplished for you in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. We've already been made partakers with Christ. Hebrews 3.14. But we're not fully partakers in the fullest sense, not yet. This city is coming to us, or it's moving toward us. But we are already citizens of heaven. Hebrews 12.22-24. So... Hope I'm not confusing you, but the experience of salvation, of redemption, the experience of joy, of the forgiveness of sins, the communion we have with our God through the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit that lives in us, us is nothing less than in many ways participating in the world to come. This verse recalls that previous discussion of angels while anticipating the world to come. The conjunction four gives us that ground that we need to pay as much attention to this as we possibly can, right? If it's not enough to pay attention to him because he's the only one that can save you, it adds credence to the fact that you better pay attention because he rules the world to come. He rules it. If you are in Christ today, you reign with him and you shall reign with him. Hallelujah. The author appeals to Psalm 8 to answer this question concerning that which we are speaking. See it, verse 5? The world to come of which we are speaking. And I tell you, that goes back to inherit salvation. Chapter 1, verse 14. It's a world that we shall inherit. It's, it's the fullness of salvation. So the writer will focus on the majesty of God in creation. The wonder of that dominion for this creation. And who was it entrusted to? Human beings in the Garden of Eden. And then he will appropriate the second half of that psalm to none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, now you ready for the sermon? I had to plow some ground so you're thinking of it. Just one point today with some subpoints. Here it is. Recall God's amazing dignity given to humanity and the original intention for man. That's what Psalm 8 is addressing. It is so clear that it's almost like David just bumps right over the fact that man has fallen into sin. Because David is captivated with God and his majesty. And he's also captivated that God would take any, any significant interest in humanity at all. Who are you? What is man that you are mindful? So notice that this passage begins with the word for... And the reason for that is he's still making a defense. For he is God. Did not subject to angels the world to come. What he had just said was that our salvation is so great. Are y'all with me? Don't miss this. It is so great. It is so well attested to. That it is folly and dangerous to neglect this salvation. And drift away from it with indifference. Why? For God did not subject the world to come to angels. 
concerning which we speak. How does that make sense? Here it is, folks. Don't neglect your salvation. For God did not subject angels to the world to come. What's at stake here is who rules the world that is to come. To whom is the age to come subjected? And the answer to this tells us something crucial about how great your salvation is. It tells you how crucial it is so that we will not neglect it. But you're going to hold to it and you're going to hold it closer. And you're going to cling to this salvation. So he, keep in mind here that when Hebrews 2.3 speaks of a salvation. It's not only referring to what Christ did in his death and resurrection to purify you from your sins. It also affects the age to come. Not just forgiving you from your sins. It affects the age to come. Which brings up that principle of people thinking they trust Christ just to escape hell. I just want my fire insurance. I feel the flames of hell on my rear end. And so I'm just going to say yes. That's not, that's not salvation. True salvation is you trust him as Lord. Now and forever. You live in that reality that Christ Jesus the Lord is your ultimate satisfaction. So much so that if you found a treasure in the field, you would bury it. And you'd go sell all you have to go back and buy it. Because you know that treasure. It's not just future rescue from danger. It is present lordship when Christ leads you and you love him and you serve him. And the writer says you serve him all the way to the end and then you're with him forever. That's salvation. So, we know this because in Hebrews 1.14, the writer says, We'll inherit salvation. In other words, we experience part of it now in the purification of our sins and reconciled to God. But there's so much more, are you listening, that we are yet to inherit. And that is what verse five, verses 5 through 9 talk about. So when verse 5 speaks of the world to come, it's talking about our final salvation. It's talking about the time and the place and the relationships of glory and perfection after Jesus comes the second time or after your body passes through death. After your body dies and your spirit passes on to see Jesus face to face. Either one of them, uh, think about the relationships in glory. The perfection that will come over your life when you see Christ face to face. In everlasting joy. So, we can paraphrase it like this. Don't neglect your coming salvation because, verse 5 says, in the coming world, it is not angels who will have everything in subjection to them. It is not angels who will rule, but who? And verses 6 through 8 of Psalm 8 gives us the answer. Or 6 through 8 here in Hebrews. But one has testified somewhere. What is man that thou rememberest him? Or the son of man that thou art concerned about him? I'm reading KJV. Thou hast made him for a little while. Lower than the angels, thou hast crowned him with glory and honor, and hast appointed him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. And Hebrews will say, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. So, how do we view Psalm, Psalm 8? How do we view Hebrews uh, 2, 6 through 8? Two things. First, let's think about man's position. Who is it then who rules the world to come? In Psalm 8, this passage refers to human beings in general. What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You've made him lower than the angels. All of this refers to the seeming insignificance of man. What is man? 
And at the same time, there's this amazing majesty of man. That's why abortion is such an evil against God. Why? Because children are made in the image of God. Period. Okay? But you've made him, man, a little less for a while than the angels. And David in this psalm is celebrating the majesty of God by calling attention to the fact that man who is created in the image of God is appointed to be the ruler over his creation. You've put all things, verse 8, under his feet. And then verses 7 through 8 tell us that we were created to rule over the earth. In rank, we are made just a little lower than the angels. And God has crowned us with brightness and with splendor. Our intended destiny is to have dominion over the earth. And it goes all the way back to Genesis 1.28. Listen. Be fruitful and increase in number. We were made for greatness. Chosen to serve as kings over creation. According to Psalm 8 and the passage in Hebrews, God has put everything under our feet. That's what it says. Second, that was man's position. Well, here's man's problem. While we might have been made to rule because we were made to rule. That's a fact. But because of the rebelliousness of our hearts, our glory has faded. Period. When we disobeyed, we died on the inside, and we started dying on the outside. And I don't care what scientists you read about, this is the facts. How can you explain how little babies die? And we think to ourselves, well, you're not really a sinner until you sin. Where did you read that in the Bible? If that's true, then why do little babies die? They, they can't even think about what a sin is. But when did sin enter the world? What happened when sin entered the world? Death! What happened on the inside comes out on the outside. And you're not reading your Bibles if you don't see this. So, there's rebellion. Instead of being conquerors, we are more like carcasses. Let's be honest. We don't see things under our feet in subjection. G.K. Chesterton said it well. Whatever else is true, this one thing is certain. Man is not what he was meant to be. That's definitely the case. So look at the last part of verse 8. Putting everything in subjection under his feet. And then we read, We do not yet see Everything in subjection to him. You see that plainly in the text. The word yet communicates that this is not how things are right now. But God has not changed his plan. The King James Version renders it this way. But now we see not yet all things put under his feet. Does that give you a little bit of feeling of unsettledness in the world that we live in? That not all things have been put under his feet at this moment now I'm an outdoorsman and here's what I've learned I don't like to do this but I can go ride a horse and I've got some kind of dominion over that animal I can catch some fish and that's fun right and I can go deer hunting I can there's dominion that I have over animals however there are certain things that are definitely not under my feet I don't pet grizzly bears. 
Rick and Bubba, syndicated radio guys over there in Alabama, I love them. They would always, you can look it up, Timothy listens to Rick and Bubba as he mows lawns all over Springfield, right? Listens to Rick and Bubba. You should look them up. They're awesome. But they have these little tidbits of information almost every day about how people think they can tame animals. And their arm gets bitten off by a Bengal tiger and they think they can raise a black bear and it mauls them. It's because God don't want you doing that right now. Right? There are certain things that are not under subjection. Earthquakes, volcanoes, floods, fires, cancer, and death. It's a stark reminder to every one of us that this world is out of whack. It's messed up. Mike Hayes writes this. Something has gone wrong. We know in our hearts that things are not right. There's an emptiness and a void that we cannot fill. There's a sadness that we cannot escape. There's an anxiety that cannot be stilled. We are drinking from the cup of chaos and confusion that our forefathers have handed down to us, and the water is bitter. That's so true. We can heal, and we can harm. We can educate, and then as people we can exterminate. We can overflow with humanitarian help, and then we can explode in inhumane ways toward our brothers. John MacArthur gives us a good perspective on this verse, and I quote, The earth was originally subject to man, and it supplied all his needs. Then tempted by Satan, man sinned, and his tempter usurped the crown. There you see the change in the chain of command. Man fell to the bottom, and the earth, under the evil one, now rules man. With all our modern technology, we must constantly fight against the earth for our survival. And there's one big thing, folks, that you're never going to have dominion over without Jesus. And that's your sin. Humans have never learned to subdue sin. It was unleashed into the human bloodstream by Adam and Eve. And it continues to infect lives today. That's the root of the human dilemma. Are you listening? We are image bearers of God. And yet we're marred because of the magnitude of our sinfulness. By nature. In short, we're a mess. Instead of living for the glory of God and His splendor, we find ourselves really in the gutter of shame. That's the reality. There are many problems with this persuasion and understanding this, but there's one glaring one that you've got to think about. Chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and will set our medicines, scoffs at our surgeries, and diets, and vitamins, And no matter how many times you circle the track up there in our gym, one of these days, all the exercise programs won't help you, nor me. And we know that's the facts. When all is said and done, rocket scientists die. Atheists die. Politicians die. Doctors die. Professors die. Nobel Prize winners die. The rich die. The poor die. The good die. The evil die. Farmers die. Bankers die. Carpenters die. Computer programmers die. And preachers die. This is the reality. And therefore nothing is ultimately subject to us. Because it's only a matter of time before it will all be taken away from us. And what we thought we had mastered is going to be ripped right right out of your hands. That's what the writer is painfully aware of. At the end of verse 8. The psalm says that man has a great destiny. As ruler of creation. This is the part of our great salvation. But the reality is we're not conquerors 
in that regard now. We are carcasses, all of us. One day, all those who believe in Christ Jesus the Lord will share in his glory. That's our hope, ladies and gentlemen. No matter what happened in that plane when, I was, when we were flying down into Newport News, Virginia, God had it under control. That's why Paul says to live as Christ and to die as gain. That's why Paul knew full well that what God had started in him, he would complete. We have that confidence in the Lord. So, better days are coming. I just need to remind you of that. I mean, I watched Fox News. This morning, it was called uh, the 12 days of inflation. 12 days of Christmas with inflation. I was like, man, that's, that sure is true, right? Uh, inflation Christmas. And we look at these things and we're like, man, times are tough and they're difficult. And obviously we're probably looking at the wrong things. I get that. But at the present, we do not see everything subjected to him. Today we still weep for little children who die too soon. We wonder about all the suffering and the pain and the heartache and the sickness and the death we see all around us. Again, G.K. Chesterton said, Whatever else is or is not true, this one thing is certain. Man is not what he is meant to be. So what does the writer then say to rescue our great salvation? To understand the meaning of Psalm 8, verse 9 is the answer. Make sure you see the connection in verse 8 to verse 9. But we see him. But we see him. Without him... There's no fulfillment of human destiny. Without him becoming a man, there's not a chance of your salvation. But we see him. Namely Jesus. Who never was made lower than the angels. But was for a time. You were created that way. It's not the way he was. Because when you get down in chapter 2 verse 14... When it says he took on, it means he took something on to himself that he wasn't previously. He's God for all eternity. And yet he took on humanity. Conclusion. And after we trashed everything when he came into the world, because the Bible says he came into his own and his own received him not. Or let me say it this way. After Adam and Eve blew it and every man after them and woman God came down in all of his glory. God condescended from his throne in glory and took on human flesh. 1 John 1, 14, For the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And yet we still didn't pay attention to him. It didn't even make sense to us. How could God visit us? But he did. And he came in such a strange way. He entered a virgin's womb, came out as a baby. You understand that technically it's the virginal conception. Because every baby that's ever been born is born the same way Jesus was. It's the conception of the baby. Virginal conception. What is conceived in you is conceived of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that awesome? And that's the way the Son of God decided to come into this world. He entered a virgin's womb and came out as a baby. Born in Bethlehem, a baby named Jesus, born to save his people from their sins. So he came as a baby, and when he grew up, mankind killed him. And if you would have been living without him then, you would have killed him too. You would have been in the same mob violence. Murdered him, hung him on a cross. That's the thanks that we gave 
the eternal God for visiting this world. But we were wrong about everything. Well, we're not. After we killed him, he came back from the dead because death was powerless. There you go again, right? Death was powerless to hold him, proving that he was right all along and we were wrong, dead wrong about everything. And still God loved us and came from heaven to earth on the greatest rescue mission that the world has ever known. He came because we blew it so badly. He came because we killed him. Or he came and we killed him. He died and he is our Savior. No one but God could have done something like this. Stopping, pump the brakes. What, what makes this so phenomenal is because no one can pull this off except God. And that's the truth of the scripture. What a story, what a Christ. C.S. Lewis said this, The Son of God became a man to enable men to become the sons of God. Wow. God has done it all. That's the good news of Christmas. God has done it all. The only thing left for you to do and for me to do is to believe the gospel. Pay attention to it. Don't drift away. God wrapped up his son in swaddling clothes and said to the whole world, this is my Christmas present for you. Unbelievable. Amazing. That's why the book of Hebrews calls it such a great salvation. So if you don't know the Lord today, today's the day. Put your faith and trust in him. And for Christians, don't live without hope. We don't sorrow as others who have, have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even will God bring with him all those who sleep in him. For the Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And we which are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And here's the ending of that verse, 18. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Not the half has been told. You're not finished yet. There's an in-between time and sanctification burns and hurts and God is whittling away, making you into what he would have you to be. He's going to conform you to the image of his son no matter what it takes. So just get ready. But boy, howdy, look what we have in the future awaiting us. Inherit. We will inherit salvation. To God be the glory. Father, we again thank you for your word. It's so rich. It's so deep. Lord, but so simple. If we follow the text, if we listen to what your word says to us. Lord, just have teenagers on my heart this morning just looking at them. God, help them to live for something greater than themselves. Help them live in the reality that you are Lord and Christ. Help them not to drift away from the truth of the gospel. Help them to think deeply about you. Help them to think about the world we live in, creation, what God intended for men to be. The obvious effects of sin in our world are clear. We're not what we were meant to be. But one day, all because your son was made a little lower than the angels for a while, but now crowned with glory and honor, we can be saved. Man can reach its ultimate destiny. All because the God-man came to this earth. We, re we, uh, we rest in your salvation that you purified us from our sins. But we also rest in the fact that you will rule the world. And if we belong to you, we shall reign with you. Father, thank you for that reality. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Let's please stand together and sing this song. Let me say just something real quick about this song. Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he the Prince of Peace, the Son of God? Most of us in this room would shout yes. If there's anybody here that says, I don't know, come now and receive Christ as your Savior. Isn't he kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. Uh, how kind he has been to us to give us a way, to be the only way that we can be saved and that we can reach God's intended purpose for man. It's impossible, apart from Christ, for man to reach his intended purpose. Keep that in your mind. That's the fact of what the scripture says. Thank the Lord that he was made a little lower than the angels for a while. But now he's crowned with glory and honor. He's exalted to the right hand of the Father and he rules and reigns. And he will continue to rule and reign until all his enemies are subject under his feet. That's what the Bible says. Rest in it. Amen. So, if you're a church member at FBCO and you have not been through Back to Bethlehem, you will today. Seriously, support your church that you're a member of. Many of you, 200 of you, are in Bethlehem. But if you haven't gone through Bethlehem this year as a church member, please carve out some time tonight between 5 and 8.30. We've got a lot of uh, reservations. I think we've got close to 800 people who have gone through in two nights. We got washed out Thursday, so really good. We're not as much concerned about the numbers as we are souls, which are represented by numbers, right? So tonight's the last night. It's pretty weather. Uh, come and walk through Bethlehem. And I, I promise you, Christian, the Lord will bless your heart to hear the story of what we've just talked about today in the sermon. All right? Anything we've missed, Brother David? So no, no Sunday night service tonight. Bethlehem is where we'll be. All right? Oh, and one more thing about Bethlehem. Right here at the stairwells right up here are some prayer sheets. And uh, they're just pray, prayer, uh, prayers you'll find in, in Scripture for the lost, how to pray for the lost with the Back to Bethlehem implications in, uh, put into those scriptures. So if you could grab one of those and be a prayer warrior today for those lost souls who may be coming tonight, please do that. That's so important. Thank you so much.